Welcome to the Digital News Report 2020, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. I'm Federica Cherubini. Man, the bombers are afraid of a fight. Peace hurts business and that ain't right. How do I know? In every episode, we dive deep into one of the aspects covered by our annual report, the most comprehensive piece of research on news consumption worldwide. I'm the Head of Leadership Development at the Institute, and for this podcast, I'll be joined by the authors of the report. Our guests today are Nick Newman, Lead Author and Senior Research Associate at the Institute, and Rasmus Nielsen, Co-Editor and, direct- and Director at the Institute. They will guide us through the essential findings from the report, including trends about misinformation, the role of platforms, level of trust in news, and of course, the economic impacts of the pandemic. Nick, Rasmus, welcome, and thank you for talking to us today. No problem. Good, to, good to, to be with you. Thanks for having us. The Digital News Report, now in its ninth edition, is the most comprehensive comparative report on news consumption in the world. This year's edition is based on data collected on, uh, by an online survey of more than 80,000 people in 40 markets. And the bulk of this report is based on data collected in January and February, just before the coronavirus hit many of these countries but also draws on updated surveys in April at the height of the lockdown um, in um, many countries. This year, our report also carries important data about the extent to which people value and trust local news, as well as exploring the way people access news about climate change, the resurgence of email newsletters, and the growing importance of podcasts and audio, all topics that we will explore in future episodes of this podcast. So the report is an essential guide for any senior media executive, but also for anyone really interested um, in uh, learning more about the news ecosystem today. Rasmus, the coronavirus pandemic is having a profound impact on our health, communities and lives, and also on the news media worldwide. What kind of short-term and long-term impact of COVID-19 can we see from the findings of this year digital news report? I think in the short term, we see many people are seeking out uh, what they consider to be reliable and trustworthy sources of news. Uh, temporarily, that leads to a boom in television news, which is very important still for many people, in particular for older demographics, uh, and is uh, very accessible when people are in lockdown uh, at home. We're also seeing a, a big increase in reliance on uh, digital news from websites and apps and some increase in social media. That's the short-term impact. I think longer term, what we will see is that a few brands will show their value and their credibility in this crisis and will probably benefit long-term from having demonstrated that to their users. More broadly, I think we will see that the crisis will accelerate the move towards a more digital, more mobile and more platform dominated environment as millions of people around the world uh, who have relied on uh, print newspapers, for example, uh, have to come to terms with digital while they are in lockdown and while distribution is restricted. And I think many of them will never return to print uh, as they come to see the value and convenience uh, of digital media. Nick, the reports always focus on paying for online news. And this year we find that the percentage of people paying for news online has gone up in many countries. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's partly because publishers themselves have changed some of their strategies. So, so there's more focus on actually asking people to pay or, or sort of restricting the amount of free content so people are forced to pay. And uh, so, for example, in countries like um, Spain over the last year, you've seen some of the big brands like El País and El Mundo 
um, introducing uh, paywalls or premium content. But I think there's something else going on. I think from the sort of consumer side, we see this sort of desire to support uh, journalism. Uh, people who think it's a good thing that there are sort of independent people at difficult times asking questions, holding powerful people to, to account. And uh, it's interesting that in the United States, over half of the people we spoke to who are paying said this is one of their main motivations. They want to support journalism. And obviously that is particularly acute at the moment uh, where you see um, media companies in a lot of trouble, local titles disappearing, staff being laid off. And a lot of the messaging right now is encouraging people to support their local paper or to uh, subscribe to uh, support independent journalism. So I think we, we sort of, most of our data, as you say, is from, from January. Um, but I think we're also seeing industry data right now, which shows there's a real sort of coronavirus bump around paying for news, whether that's sustainable, of course, um, is a big question. And it won't be for all people. I mean, the majority of people still are not paying for online news. They find the, the free sources good enough. And Rasmus, so even if that numbers, as Nick is saying, is growing, many people in countries such as Norway and the UK say they would never really pay for online news. Is there anything that news brands can do um, to convince them otherwise? I mean, I think we need to be realistic about this, that uh, given uh, an abundance of options and near infinite variety of at least some sources of news, not always local news, for example, uh, or, or other forms of more specialized provision, but given the abundance um, and the economics of the online marketplace, many people in some countries, probably most people will for the foreseeable future be perfectly content with the things that they can access for free. Uh, that said, I think the results that Nick just described are quite encouraging. I think we need to remember that 10 years ago, people thought it would never work to charge for digital news. And year after year, we find that uh, those publishers who are able to produce really distinct really premium, really valuable journalism are finding incremental growth in the number of people who are willing to pay to support for that. And of course, there are some countries uh, like Norway, for example, with a very particular market in the history uh, that have more subscribers or the US, where, as Nick said, a particularly sort of polarized political situation has really underlined the value and importance of journalism for many people that are seeing more progress. But I think the most fundamental and important takeaway here is that for the foreseeable future, Many people will not pay, but if we can move the needle on the number of people who might be willing to pay and follow the success of some brands, I think we can see some real improvements in the business of news that can in turn then help power independent professional journalism across the world. And of those people who are paying, um, Nick, the report finds that the most digital subscription are actually sold by the big news brands in every country. Are there any ways that smaller digital only outlets can sign up subscribers or pay members? I, I think, yeah, I think there are different models. I mean, as you say, what we found was that um, of the people who are paying, the big brands, um, New York Times, the Times of London, Washington Post, um, the Telegraph in the UK and the big national papers in Norway are taking somewhere between a third and a half of all of the, the, the subscriptions. And that's sort of, we see that on the internet, sort of um, it almost encourages um, a winner takes most kind of environment. But we also see that the internet is very good at enabling um, smaller brands to reach people who find value in something much more specific. And I think we see that in our research this year. It was really interesting looking at, you know, the, the, the brands that people said they were paying for. Uh, we see that they're 
um, paying for or donating to um, to brands like um, El Diario in Spain, Mediapart in France, uh, Zetland. Uh, and we found this incredibly long tail. I mean, lots of local papers uh, were mentioned by our correspondents. They were subscribing to local papers in Norway in particular, uh, weekly magazines as well. And then you've seen the emergence of uh, very specialist brands around passion. So things like sport, uh, the athletic, um, which launched in, in the UK in the last year, starting to pick up uh, subscriptions for something that people really care about passionately. Uh, and then just finally, I think, you know, donations, um, there are lots of different ways in which smaller price points, lower price points are really going to work. And again, we're seeing many smaller brands uh, with lower cost bases who are able to ask readers who really value what they do to pay them some money, to give, to give them some money effectively. That's indeed a, an encouraging uh, point. Um, moving on to another big topic that the report um, focuses on, um, which is the rise of misinformation. Um, the report finds that even in January, 56% of the people in our sample said that they were concerned about what was true or false on the internet um, when it came to news. Um, Rasmus, who are they blaming for this? Well, I mean, our research is very clear. Uh, I think there are two main different uh, types of actors that people hold responsible for this. On the one hand, uh, people hold large digital platform companies uh, responsible for this, uh, but two different degrees in different markets, uh, it's different companies that they blame is focused on. But I think a very large part of the public clearly recognize that much of the content that's spread on these uh, for-profit uh, platforms um, is often misleading, uh, false, or, or in other ways potentially harmful, and, and people are aware of this, and there is great concern over this in, in many markets. The other type of concern that we document in market after market is that people clearly recognize that some domestic politicians are often uh, deliberately spreading false and misleading information or various forms of, uh, of, uh, of misinformation, and people recognize this is a serious problem. So we also have a significant number of people who see news organizations and journalists as uh, complicit with problems of misinformation or contributing to them. But the two central types of actors that people uh, see as responsible for the very real misinformation crisis are platform companies and some domestic politicians. On the platform, Nick, which platforms are people most concerned about? Well, not surprisingly, um, Facebook comes at the top followed by messaging apps like WhatsApp and then YouTube and Twitter in that order. So, I mean, it's not really surprising. It's pretty much the order in which people use those platforms for news. But as Rasmus was saying, you know, there are some really interesting country differences. So in parts of the global south, such as uh, Brazil, Chile, Mexico, uh, also Malaysia, people are more concerned about those messaging applications. So um, WhatsApp is used in very different ways. It's been used, as you know, um, in recent elections to spread misinformation. And it's much harder to see what's going on sometimes in these closed networks. So it's, it's very, very different, actually, how some applications are used in, in, in some countries, whereas in the Philippines, for example, it's all about Facebook. So uh, as, as Rasmus says, country differences. And uh, Rasmus, you mentioned um, platforms and, and politicians. Um, one of the most relevant questions in our survey is the one about how the news uh, media should cover misleading statements coming from politicians such as Jair Bolsonaro and Donald Trump. Um, most of our respondents think that um, news should report, like news media should report on this statement prominently because it is important for the public to know what the politicians are saying. Rasmus, were you surprised about this? I mean, I think it's clear that uh, often 
public opinion both on the value and nature of journalism, but also how people think that journalism ought to fulfill its role in society, is often at odds with uh, what some journalists and many sort of pundits and commentators in journalism might uh, might uh, aspire to or, or wish for. Um, and I think we have to recognize this, that in a situation like this, uh, I personally might see many reasons uh, why I may not myself uh, believe that um, potentially false or misleading uh, or hateful statements by major politicians should be prominently reported. But the findings uh, are very clear. I mean, the majority of the public uh, seem to hold the view that this uh, should be covered prominently and seem to feel confident that both they themselves and their fellow citizens are perfectly capable of handling the truth. Uh, even if the truth is that a major politician has been lying to them or trying to mislead them or engage in, in other forms of deeply problematic political discourse. So I think that's a, a clear finding here. Um, and some in the profession and the commentary will disagree with this, but we need to recognize that ultimately journalism is based on the context of its audience. And I think we have to be at least to some extent responsive to what people see as the proper role of journalism if we in fact want to serve the public. And deeply linked to the, to the misleading statement that we can see from politician or platform um, is, is then the, the, the issue of trust in news. Um, Nick, trust in news has gone down four points across the four markets covered in the last year. Um, what are the reasons for this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a trend for um, in some countries, not all, but in, in some countries for some years. So falling trust, falling trust even in the brands uh, you use yourself. And some of this is to do with misinformation. Um, lack of trust in society generally, growing polarization, as we've been hearing about. Um, but it's interesting, if, I mean, if you look at some of the biggest fallers this year, so Hong Kong down 16 points, uh, Chile down uh, 15 points to, to 30% who say they trust the news. The UK uh, down 12. Uh, we've obviously had really divisive year over Brexit. Um, and uh, I think what's interesting is not, is not necessarily because journalism itself is getting worse, but it's that when you talk to people, they say that they see the media as having an agenda or being part of the elites in some way, or as being biased when it comes to these deeply polarizing issues like Brexit. And uh, we, we definitely, if you dig further into the data, you can see that polarization in action in the UK. You can see this sort of really significant fall over the last year in people on the left of politics um, who uh, do not feel they, they trust the media in the way they did a year before, whereas people on the right uh, trust the media a little bit more. In the US, it's the other way around. But again, it speaks to this question of partisanship and polarization playing into, into low trust. And what can media do to get back this trust um, from the audience, Rasmus? I mean, I think everyone in the industry and the profession recognize that this is one of the defining issues phasing journalism and the news industry today. The World Association of News Publishers, of course, trust the sort of the currency of the future of, of journalism and news. Um, I think the truth of the matter is that, that we don't fully understand this issue yet, and I'm glad to report that we are starting a major new project on trust in news uh, to really look more closely at this and try to identify evidence-based, actionable recommendations uh, that editors and journalists can think about as possible ways of responding to this. But I do think we know some things already from work the, that we have done at the Reuters Institute over the years. Uh, one is that I, I think we need to recognize that while there is a very clear overall decline in trust in many countries, it's not always the case that no individual news brands are trusted, and that in many countries where they are genuinely independent, uh, public service media, for example, are often broadly trusted. 
just as in many countries, uh, widely used commercial broadcasts that the people are familiar with and that people see as sort of relatively impartial, relatively centrist often in the news coverage are also often broadly trusted. Then followed by upmarket elite newspapers that sometimes can be a bit more um, uh, partisan in their editorial line, but are often seen as credible uh, in part because people associate them with quality reporting and investment in the editorial. So I think we can see some differences already that gives us an indication that in some ways sort of familiarity matters, in some ways impartiality matters, in some ways investment in editorial content matters. But there are also, I think, dimensions of trust that are more uncomfortable and where we may face a situation where there are things that journalists and editors can do to increase their trust with certain parts of the public, but may not wish to do. So for example, um, I would be surprised um, if uh, many news media in the United States couldn't at least somewhat increase their trust um, with uh, many parts um, of uh, the conservative part of the American public uh, by essentially covering President Trump in a much more positive way and uh, being much less aggressive in their, uh, in their work to hold the president to account and uh, expose uh, some of his more um, uh, baroque um, statements and misstatements. And similarly, in the UK, uh, as Nick just described, there was a collapse in trust um, amongst parts of the left. Uh, and I have no question that, that that would be somewhat higher levels of trust amongst many on the left um, if the British media had been less uh, uh, systematic in their scrutiny of Jeremy Corbyn, for example. Now, these are things that can influence trust, but are they the right thing to do? I mean, that's not my decision, uh, and really my, my position as director of the Reuters Institute to judge. I can simply say, you know, these are some things that matter, and then we hope that we can help journalists and editors understand better the likely consequence of the choices they make, in this case, for example, between the desire to seek truth and report it on matters of public significance, versus also the possibility that sometimes you offend part of the public if you really hold power to account if those powerful people are people that they really like. We describe a, a polarized news ecosystem more or less to a different extent in different countries, and yet the report finds that there is a silent majority who actually prefers to consume news with no point of view at all. Nick, why is that? Yeah, this, uh, I mean, we're, we're dealing with some of these complexities around, around trust and, and how people see the news. And this is a slightly sort of binary question. You know, do you prefer neutral news or do you prefer news that shares your point of view? Um, and um, what we find is the majority in most countries, the vast majority, in fact, say they would prefer news with no point of view. And I think this relates to, you know, people who repeatedly say in focus groups, you know, they don't like uh, agendas being forced on them, uh, they would rather have the facts laid, laid out and then they make up their own minds about what to think. I mean, the truth is, of course, people also like opinion and they like some of those more partisan brands uh, in newspapers, for example, to help them work out um, you know, what they think about particularly difficult issues. Uh, and I, I, I must say I had expected with the rise of sort of partisanship that to have shifted since we last asked this question in, in 2013. Um, but actually, you know, the commitment to news that at least tries to be objective seems to be as strong as it was in countries like the UK, um, uh, Denmark, Norway, for example, Germany. Uh, and in the US, we have seen a sort of slight rise in the proportion of people who say that they favour more partisan news, news that shares their point of view. Um, but only only slight, and, that, and it's striking that still the, the silent majority, you know, still say they prefer um, neutral news, uh, news that has no particular point of view. Thanks, Nick. Rasmus, 
to go back to where we started, the pandemic has increased, um, as we said, what uh, Nick mentioned as a, as a subscriber's bump um, of some news organizations around the world, um, but it's also reduced print and digital advertising revenue. Which kind of news ecosystem is going to emerge from this and what are the implications for the society as a whole? I mean, first of all, I think um, that the crisis has both reminded uh, much of the public of why it is so important that we have independent professional journalism from independent and uh, financially sustainable news media that can help people understand the world around them and, uh, and scrutinize how powerful people are stewarding their, their public roles. Um, it's also clear uh, that the short-term impact will be very severe on the finance of the industry. Uh, I think we can think of this as sort of a moment in time where we're beginning to see the first sort of green shoots of spring as more and more organizations were navigating the transition from legacy to digital and, and more and more uh, new entrants were finding their feet where this sort of early spring is hit by a very hot frost. And I think it's going to be really actually very hot. Uh, a lot of organizations are losing a lot of expected revenue uh, organizations that are either were based on sort of investors uh, trusting that they would build towards sustainability or have vulnerable finances because of the legacy problems around debt or pension obligations or the like are really very exposed in this. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very serious crisis of the industry worldwide with very real consequences, very sad consequences for journalists, but also for the publics that they serve. Uh, that said, I think more broadly, um, what we are seeing is that this is accelerating a move towards a digital environment and those who were already um, well adapted to the digital present and the digital future that we are moving towards, I think will come out in many cases relatively well at the, at the, at the other side of this crisis. It'll be a media environment that is more focused on digital uh, media. It'll be a media environment that's more centered around mobile devices and other forms of smart technology. It will probably be a media environment in which a number of platforms may play an even more dominant role, though which ones exactly it is we uh, have yet to see. And I think for publishers to survive in this environment, um, it's really about being much more distinct and much more clearly valuable for the particular part of the public that you are serving in most cases. There are some exceptions, public service media and some others who can still really seek reach. But I like to say sometimes that there are only two kinds of media left in the world, niche media who know that they're niche medium and then niche media who think that they are mass media. And I think we'll see a real reckoning with that as we move forward, as publishers recognize that their share of attention is often quite limited and they need to build both their editorial business mission and their, and their business around the reality of that and then really see how they can serve people in much more distinct uh, and premium ways. Some of these organizations um, will be much smaller than the news organizations we have uh, been used to. Uh, but I also think that will be doing incredibly important work. And I think we're seeing outstandingly and impressive journalism in this very difficult situation, even as budgets are bleeding and even as journalists are constrained. And in that sense, while it's a super challenging moment for journalism and for the news industry, I think there are also some signs of what will come on the other side, something that's really, really important and will be really battle tested by this crisis. And I'm confident uh, that many journalists um, and many news organizations will find a way through, even though it is a really difficult situation for both the profession and the industry. That's a good um, optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much, Rasmus and Nick, for joining us and to you all for listening to our first episode of the Digital News Report 2020. In the next episode, we'll talk about the future of local news. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so that you don't miss any um, of the new episodes. You can find the report online at digitalnewsreport.org 
And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking on the link on our Twitter bio at RISJ underscore Oxford or on our homepage. We'll be back next week with our second episode. Bye. Pick up a copy anytime you choose. Seven little pennies in the newsboy's hand, and you ride right along to Never Never Land.